Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. By the time the Beatles knocked it on the head in 1970, they had written the template for the arc of the modern showbiz career. The origin story, the rise, the fame, the they've made their Sgt. Pepper. Amidst all of this, they were pioneers in riding the wave of the media furore and the media apology. John Lennon never actually used the phrase bigger than Jesus, but that's not the point, is it, Stephen? It isn't. You have to be misquoted or quoted out of context, as prefab Sprite would say. And uh, the point of this isn't that the Beatles weren't the first people to have a media frenzy. You had the, you know, Hollywood fatty arbuckle media frenzies of the turn of the 20th century. And in the UK, you had the Jerry Lee Lewis media frenzy. I mean, they didn't invent tabloid crazy journalism. But what's good about the Beatles story is how they approached it, how they kind of apologised, didn't apologise, stood by their words. How it unfolds is very, is a very 20th century media thing. It's a very 20th century story, I think. And yeah, it's how they approach it. And I mean, to some some degree, they use it as a bit of a springboard for the next stage of their career. Yeah, they use it to stand on their own two feet in a way when you kind of look at it all these years later. Um, so we should probably do a tiny bit of background as to what they were up to in 1966, because the bigger than Jesus furore um, kicks in and uh, affects the US and Canadian tour of August 1966. But we'll just give the high level overview, which was that at the start of 1966, it was supposed to be a year like any other year, a movie, two albums and some world touring. And the first part of the year goes off the rails a little bit when there's no movie. So they've some time off. Um, there isn't a, a movie soundtrack to come out. Um, as we've said in the 16 Songs of 66, they work away on Revolver at their own pace. Um, and there was the first part of, I think it's quite quaint that they call it a world tour when we're living in an age of Taylor Swift doing a two-year, $1 billion grossing. The first ever $1 billion tour Taylor Swift is doing. Did you know that, Stephen? God God bless her. I do. I've contributed to her uh, pension <laughs> To her billion. Yes, me too. Um, they were doing a two-part world tour with the big set of uh, inverted commas around that. Uh, the part one of the world tour was West Germany, Japan and the Philippines, which was between the 24th of June and the 4th of July. Um, and then they go back home. And that's it's, it's in that kind of gap between the first part of the world tour and the second part of the world tour that the interview breaks. But 
where do we where do we start with the whole story of the the bigger than Jesus interview? Well, it starts back in March. So before March of 1966, so before they go on World Tour Part One, and it emerges in the context of a series of articles written by a reporter, Maureen Cleave, where she interviewed each of the Beatles. How does a Beatle live? And these interviews were run in London's Evening Standard. And the quotes that John gives about Christianity are in the context of that interview, and they're published in the Evening Standard in March. Looking back, it's difficult. You know, we assume that the quote caused a storm at the time, but it really doesn't. And the other aspect is, why would he say such a thing? You can't imagine a situation in the 21st century where any actor or rock star, their media people, their PR people would allow such a quote to go out. So different times, more innocent times. And Maureen Cleave in particular, she's a friend of the Beatles. So there's a couple of points, I think, to provide context. And the first is she has a very close relationship with all four of the Beatles. She's their friend. Yes. And... This is part and parcel of the fact that they did have this downtime at the start of 1966. So one of the ripples of this is that Maureen Cleave does these four character study interviews of the four Beatles. And we were reminded of a couple of things. One is that the Beatles had a very small number of people around them. They didn't each have their own entourage. They didn't each have minders at each of their houses telling them what to do or what not to say. And also the the, the press, um, the notion that somebody would be able to review their press or review an interview before it goes out wasn't necessarily de rigueur back in the 1960s. But the third part is, as you say, Maureen Cleave was a trusted confidant. So she would be one of the people who would have carte blanche. It's not that everybody had carte blanche to see the Beatles, but whoever did, did, and they were able to, to do as they please. And it's worth pointing out that Maureen Cleave only passed away in November 2021 at the age of 87. And, and this, you know, the headlines at the time, I remember, were, you know, Beatles interviewer who said bigger than Jesus quote. Like that, This was the thing that was her epitaph. Yes, this is this defined her obituaries. This is what she is remembered for, which is slightly unfair. I think she was a very well-respected journalist and she did lots more things than interview John Lennon in 1966. But she had access in a way that no journalist would have access today to someone of the Beatles' stature. And they're very insightful interviews. If you read all four of them, they are available uh, online, the full text, and they are certainly worth reading in their entirety. So Paul is comes across as the, the man about town. He's soaking up culture. His interview is full of references like that. George talks about his developing interest in Indian music and culture. Ringo is the family man at home, slightly domesticated, the most domesticated of all of them. John comes across as bored, dissatisfied, just struggling to find an identity outside that mop top image. You know, he's taking three months off, dropping acid, reading books. He's physically stuck in a house in the stockbroker belt that doesn't suit him. He's stuck. And I'm air quoting that with a wife and child at a time when he sees his main collaborator, Paul, out enjoying the uh, the life of a single man and uh, with all that that entailed. And the interviews 
basically give a very good pen portrait of where each of the four of them are at that time. So Maureen herself is able to slot into their universe quite well. At the time of the interviews in 1966, she's about 32 years of age. Um, Her backstory is that she was born in India in 1934 and raised in Ireland. I didn't know that. She'd been working in the London Evening Standard from 1958, so a time of great change between 1958 and 1966. And she had started as a secretary and then moved up to show business correspondent. And she had a a pop column called Disc Date. And her first interview with the, the Beatles was in January 63. So she's on board pretty early. She's on board pretty early. And, uh, she she wrote a piece called Why the Beatles Create All That Frenzy. And it's really regarded as the first, I suppose, piece that takes them seriously. And she writes in that their behavior ranges from the preposterous, farcical and impossible to the kindly, thoughtful and polite. You are outraged, diverted and charmed. You are never, ever bored. And I think that absolutely nails in that three or four sentences what the Beatles characters and what they're what they're like in 1963. And so she becomes one of that kind of Mary crew who writes well about the Beatles and who takes them seriously, but also enjoys their sense of fun. So, you know, the the, the Tony Barrows of the world and the Derek Taylors of this world, you know, are, are also brought along for the ride. She's kind of in that pro-Beatles clique, but she's not really a cloying or a, you know, a, there's nothing kind of sentimental about her writing. No, she doesn't come across as being sycophantic in any way. And Paul talks about her briefly in Anthology, and he says Maureen was interesting and easy to talk to. John made the unfortunate mistake of talking very freely because Maureen was someone we knew very well to whom we would just talk straight from the shoulder. So you get a sense that, like Derek Taylor, who moves to the inside of the organization, she enjoys this relationship of trust, and they will speak very candidly to her. And it also speaks to the Beatles that they're not um, treating a female reporter in any way differently to a male reporter. That what you kind of see with the Maureen Beatles interaction is that she slips into the group with ease. You know, she described them as uh, more fun than anyone else and terrible teases. Um, the, the interviewer was outnumbered four to one. They might put your coat in the waste paper basket, offer to marry you, seize your notebook and pencil, pick you up and put you somewhere else, demand you cut their hair. But on the other hand, they were often kind, offering you cigarettes or a swig from their bottles of Coke, making sure you never got left behind. So she got the full on Beatles as group, four-headed monster routine at its peak. They treat her as an equal. She is sort of one of them to the extent that there's a, there's a story which is slightly apocryphal that she rewrote a line in A Hard Day's Night. The original line was, I find my tiredness is through and I feel all right. And the line became, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. And she wrote about this in the Daily Mail. I had always understood that she wrote the line. But she writes, one day I picked John up in a taxi and took him to Abbey Road for a recording session. The tune to the song A Hard Day's Night was in his head. The words scrawled on a birthday card from a fan to his little son, Julian. When I get home to you, it said, I find my tiredness is through. Rather a feeble line about tiredness, I said. Okay, John said cheerfully, and borrowing my pen, instantly changed it to the slightly suggestive. When I get home to you, I find that things that you do will make me feel all right. So she suggested the change rather than write the line, which was new to me. Well, you know, 
there's been a recurring theme recently in certain episodes of Nothing Is Real where key lines from key songs were actually not written by John Lennon. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe it's that she provoked him like a good sub-editor to rewrite the line. Maybe that's what happened. But yes, if this is another example of what, what will we find out next? Um, she There's also the theory about Maureen Cleave is that she is something to do with Norwegian wood. Yes. So this is a song that Lennon famously described as being written about an affair, but at the same time, quite understandably, not wanting to, to let Cynthia know uh, that he was having an affair. And it, he claimed at one point that Norwegian Wood was written about Maureen Cleave and that he had had an affair, but she denied it. And then John later recanted, saying that he couldn't remember uh, who it was about. So maybe that was him being chivalrous after the fact i don't know but the other rumor is it may have been about sonny freeman who's the wife of the photographer robert freeman who sort of shot various album covers including with the beatles and help and robert soul etc but she was quite adamant that it wasn't about her and again she wrote about this she ended her association with lennon in 1966 and she wrote about this saying i just got married he was disappointed in my engagement ring which was a ruby that glowed rather than glittered he was interested in my husband i'd never introduced them he was too tall the beatles did not like men taller than they were i put forward a case for marital fidelity and he was interested in this as he was in all ideas to me to say i might be missing something i hope i grow out of being so sex mad sex is the only physical exercise i bother with I think we can all get on board with that. <laughs> I don't know. There's something to be said for mowing the lawn. Um, the uh, so 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 this is kind of the background of 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 Maureen Cleave. I suppose we should also, you know, that the look at the kind of the UK perspective as well. The, the bigger than Jesus controversy, I, I think it's fair to say, is is really a, a, a North American, and when I say North American, I mean really a United States of American. Um, problem when when it arises yes and um without without um getting into a a, a massive hornet's nest uh, there's a difference in 1966 between christianity as it is as a national pastime in the uk and as it exists in in america particularly in 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 the south so uh, there's probably a bit of background needed as to you know what john's perspective of christianity as a uk raised citizen would be Yes, I think in the UK, Christianity, that term Christianity is really or was really seen in 1966 as being synonymous with the Church of England. So the established, if you like, state-sponsored religion, the the monarch in the UK is the head of the church. So it's it's part of the establishment. And in 1966, the early 60s, it was seen as being very stayed hopelessly out of touch it was a frequent target for satirists like david frost peter cook etc so it was seen as a very stuffy out of touch organization and i i think we can safely say that that is what john is referring to whenever he uses the term quote christianity rather than the wider sort of precepts of christianity and certainly not as it would be understood in, you said, North America, sort of the southern parts of Northern America, where it is, there's, there's a more fervent belief, uh, I suppose, than there would be in the UK at that time. Certainly today, it's just 
seen as part of the mechanism of the establishment here. Yeah, and and there, there's a quote from Paul in Anthology where he talks about, um, you know, at the time, uh, and, and this is true, that the, the church leaders themselves had been complaining about, you know, drop-offs in congregations. Um, Paul said, we used to get a lot of number of a number of Catholic priests showing up at our gigs and we'd do a lot of debating backstage. Really? I don't know. I don't know where the Beatles doing a lot of theological debating backstage with Catholic priests. We'd say, you should have gospel singing. That'll pull them in. You should be more lively instead of singing hackneyed old hymns. Everybody's heard them and they're not getting off on them anymore. So we felt quite strongly that the church should get its act together. We were actually very pro-church. It wasn't any sort of demonic anti-religion point of view that John was trying to express. I'm glad they're quite clear about not being demons there. Yes, I think Paul is slightly over-egging the pudding there. You know, he's talking very specifically in the context of the John quote, where he's saying oh, John wasn't trying to to sort of be anti-church. But I think it's it's almost a rewriting of history to say we were actually very pro-church. If you can turn up any single instance of them being pro-church, I'd like to hear it. You know, George in particular is is extremely anti-church and organized religion, specifically the the Catholic Church, but I do like the idea, yes, as you say, that they had the groupies in one room backstage and the Catholic <laughs> priests in the other room so that they could carry on a theological debate. Yes. What are you doing here? Or seek uh, forgiveness, said forgiveness. the Catholic priests. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. yes, make confession. Uh, uh, <laughs> there was, well, there was, a, there was a general tilt. I mean, certainly in Catholicism in the 1960s, you know, there was uh, debating the, you know, the Latin mass and, you know, the, the church is suddenly you know, up against cinema and television and, you know, mass communications. So the Catholic Church had Vatican II and moved towards, you know, how do we get bums on seats, basically. And there was a similar kind of movement in the Church of England, which was how do we get bums on seats? You know, there were some outspoken, um, you know, bishops and priests trying to recategorise what the Church's role should have been. And I'm not trying to you know, be all historian like David Kyniston or something about all of this kind of stuff. But that's roughly what was happening. So there was a, you know, a recurrent theme in the papers in the years leading up to this of, you know, well, congregation numbers are going down. Young people are getting more distracted about other things. You know, what do we do about this? So I guess what we're trying to say is that John didn't just say this out of the blue. He was saying it in no. in a world where the church was shifting and you know, if you're in your early 20s and you've grown up in, you know, Church of England, Britain, then, yeah, to actually see a little bit of that power wobble or that kind of sway that they have wobble, then why not talk about it? That's exactly right. I think you need to see the context. And this is a debate that is ongoing. So the debate is happening on a daily basis. I was waiting for you to make a, the church has trouble with mass communication, but uh, you didn't go there. Oh, sorry. Oh, gosh, damn it. It was, it was, it was, a, it was an open goal. Let's go to the, the Lennon interview itself, because Maureen is, uh, she gets to go out to conduct the interview in Weybridge while John is on a break. So why don't we take a break and we'll go into the details after that. End of part one, intermission. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So, the Lennon interview by Maureen Cleave happens in his house in Weybridge, which is his sanctuary, his safe space. It's been his hiding hole um, in recent months. Um, what What's he doing at this point in his life? He's taking a lot of acid. So we should, we should say that first of all. Uh, you know, he's fully embracing LSD. He's reading a lot and specifically reading about world religion. And that might be Timothy Leary's thoughts on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, But specifically, he's reading a book or has read a book called The Passover Plot by a biblical scholar, British scholar called Hugh Schoenfeld. Uh, This is a book that only came out in 1965. And there was a degree of controversy about the book. People were buying it. It was being discussed. Basically, it set out a theory that Jesus Christ was simply a mortal man who faked his miracles uh, that he duped his disciples and his plan was that he would be crucified but he'd only be on the cross for a few hours because people who were being crucified had to be taken down on the sabbath then he would appear to have been resurrected and he would get to be the earthly king of the jews and that his death was a mistake because a roman soldier intervened stabbed him with a spear and he actually died but the key point is the disciples were duped by Jesus into believing the story, and then they went on to propagate the myth. So, again, in the nature of the 60s and challenges to authority and challenges to the establishment, this is a book that is current, controversial, and being discussed in the press. So the the, the point of the Passover plot is it's a prank that kind of went out of hand, and now it's all this is the the general notion of it. There was another book doing the rounds at the time, actually, from the early 60s, by the Bishop of Woolwich, who was a guy called John A.T. Robinson, who wrote a book called Honest to God, about 62, 63. And he was was an actual, one of your actual bishops. And this was a book that, when it came out, caused a lot of controversy because what he wanted to try and do was to, to, say, get people away from this religious notion that God is a big man in the sky, and this is interesting because this is a phrase that John will drop in later on where he says, you know, we shouldn't see God as a big man in the sky. And what this book sort of said was that, you know, the role of Christianity should be to embrace a universal ethic of love, which is very 1967, you know. Isn't, isn't, it, isn't it just? Hmm. Um, so, so John has obviously taken in all these kind of ideas. Yes, he's looking for a He's looking for a role, I think. He's looking to break out of this mop-top image. And this goes all the way back, I suppose, to art college. And he he constantly say, 
throughout his life, you know, I'm not sure if I'm an idiot or I'm a genius and am I a madman or, and I suppose we all, you know, everybody likes to think of themselves as being an intellectual and, and when you're in that stage of your life, oh, well, everybody (laughs) except you likes to think of themselves as having an understanding of things. And in in John, I think it's all part of those insecurities. And is he really an intellectual? Is he just parroting something? Uh, he's looking for an identity, and, and this is part of that. He's looking for something, and I suppose he can see at one point around this time, George is very clearly finding his identity. He Outside the, the group, he is embracing Indian culture, Indian music, and that will sort of carry the day for the next uh, 18 months or so. Paul is very much settling into that role, man about town, culture, plays, theatre, rubbing shoulders with people that really you would expect John to be doing that. Ringo is settled into a role as a family man. John isn't content as a family man. He, You can see in this interview, he talks about Indian music, but he's never really embracing that. And the fact that he's married and with, with a child is preventing him doing the things that Paul is doing. So uh, he's sort of jumping all over the place. It's like somebody who just buys a million books to read, but there's no plan, there's no thought. It's just, I have to read this and this and this and this. And the interview sort of reflects that mindset, I think, in that it skips about. And I think with hindsight, this is probably what Maureen Cleave is trying to do in the interview is is capture that sense of Lennon's searching and flitting about from subject to subject. So, yeah, I'm going to, it does flip around a lot and that does seem to mimic his mindset. So I'm going to read the three paragraphs um, And so the two paragraphs that appear either side of the Christianity paragraph. So um, here we go. So this is from Maureen Cleave's article, How Does a Beetle Live? His enthusiasm is undiminished and he insists on it being shared. George has put him on to this Indian music. You're not listening, are you? He shouts after 20 minutes of the record. It's amazing this, so cool. Don't the Indians appear cool to you? Are you listening? This music is thousands of years old. It makes me laugh, the British going over there and telling them what to do. Quite amazing. And he switched on the television set. Experience has sown a few seeds of doubt in him. Not that his mind is closed, but it's closed round whatever he believes at the time. Christianity will go, he said. It'll vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. He is reading extensively about religion. He shops in lightning swoops on Aspreys these days, and there is some fine wine in his cellar, but he is still quite unselfconscious. He is far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he has not. So, there's that bombshell in the middle of all this, or this future bombshell, but yeah, it's skipping around all over the place. It's showing his, I don't know, maybe there'd be an ADHD kind of slant to this in 2023 but he's covering loads of different things it's it's quite mad to think of uh, Maureen Cleave sitting through 20 minutes of Indian music being blasted him blasted at her by John Lennon he's like do you get it huh huh and um you know it's it's yeah it, it goes all over the place it goes all over the place and as soon as he says this about the Indian music he switches on the TV and again it's this this mind and maybe it's it's just the way he is, or maybe it's the acid or whatever. And the final line where he said he's too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he has not. So she's laying bare the fact that he hasn't decided 
what he should be. And she talks there about lightning swoops on Aspreys. And we should explain for the overseas listeners what Aspreys is. Well, I'm overseas and I don't know what Aspreys is. So <laughs> fill me in. It's your poor wife that I feel sorry for that you've never shopped at Aspreys. <laughs> Aspreys is, it was, it's a very, very old shop. It was established in 1781. Uh, it was described as a luxury emporium. It's most famous for being uh, sort of jewellers to the British crown. But there are a couple of interesting Beatles-related facts. So Aspreys actually features in Help, the movie. Oh. So on the 9th of May, 1965, the Beatles are filming in New Bond Street and they go to Aspreys to get the ring removed from Ringo's finger. Ah, Okay. Interesting fact number one. Interesting fact number <laughs> two. In 1973, they made a bespoke chess set for Ringo. Hmm. Uh, it was made of sterling silver and gold plate, and each piece was Ringo's hand. Okay. Complete with rings, and you know the pieces were differentiated. These uh, sort of knights, queens, bishops, etc. By the gesture the hand was making. <laughs> that seems very confusing. It doesn't seem very confusing. It seems to me that it's probably uh, um, something to be looked at rather than <laughs> used to play a game of chess. And the third fun fact, there is a Japanese Beatles tribute band called the Aspreys. And you can find them on YouTube doing a very good cover of Any Time at All in Abbey Road Studio 2. Well, go. it's all connected. Good, good Lord. All connected. Yeah, uh, you can go to Asprey.com today. I'd never heard of them before today. And um, yeah, you can buy a very nice rucksack for four and a half thousand pounds. It's that kind of shop. It's a shop that's so exclusive, you don't know about it until you're able to pay for it. That's kind of it. It's not, it's it's that next level above your your named brands that, you know, us, us, us high street people get to know. This is in, they're still in Bond Street as well. It's uh, It's not a shop for the likes of, you and me. Nope. Um, but it is a shop for the likes of, of the Beatles. Um, so, yeah, so John does this interview. It's skipping all over the place. And it's one of four interviews. And what we'll kind of see is that, you know, the, the whole bigger than Jesus thing is perhaps the least toupee levitating quote that comes out of these interviews um, as they get uh, as they get kind of spun around the world. But certainly when this is published in the Evening Standard in the UK... Everyone kind of shrugs their shoulders. There's no problem with it. There's no um, disaster. There's no PR issue. It's just filed away. So what happens is the the interview gets repurposed and starts to, to travel. Yes, the only reference that I could find in the UK was in The Guardian. And the writer just simply said, God is not mocked. But yeah, it's not it's not picked up at all. It doesn't create any issue at all. But then Maureen Cleave reworked some of the interviews material for a New York Times magazine published on the 3rd of July, 1966, under the title Old Beatles, A Study in Paradox. And we should say we do love the New York Times. They they have their moments. Certainly their their, their podcast coverage is excellent. Um, the... Uh... Excellent podcast coverage. Um, yeah, so Old Beatles, A Study in Paradox, it's quite a um, perceptive article. It, it kind of amalgamates the, the four pieces so that it covers all four Beatles. 
but there are certainly um, moments in it where you might um, raise an eyebrow all the way to the back of your neck when, when you see what the, the, the Beatles are being quoted on. From a 2023 perspective, some of these quotes are quite incendiary and we should we should sort of put out a trigger warning at this point. But um, it, I, I find it is a very perceptive article uh, from what we know looking back. I think she absolutely nails where they are in 1966 and she makes some very telling comments about where they will be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from the date of this interview. Should we read the entire thing? Yes. No, let's not. Um, (laughs) But we should say from the start, she does say, um, you know, the Beatles, you know, gradually emerged that they, the Beatles, were more than mere singers. Their appeal extended far beyond people who bought their records. They were held in such affectionate regard by so many as to make them virtually indestructible. I think that's hugely perceptive that, you know, they are more than their records, that people are buying into the personality. And as we kind of see in 21st century stardom, that if you have an affection for um, for a famous figure or you've signed up to follow a famous figure, it, it kind of can make them indestructible in your eyes, that you'll go along, you see people, even after the most horrible allegations are being made about people, people are like, yeah, I still stand by them. I'm still, because they can't let go of that affection that has drawn them into to being a fan. So she certainly had her, she certainly was able to see that fan star relationship. Absolutely. And she said, uh, they are above public whim or fancy. All they have to do is be there. And I think this quote is great. She said, we may hear less about them, but they can never be replaced. So as early as 1966, she's basically identifying them as central figures in a cultural context and historical context that these are not just mere pop stars. Um, So... Yeah, let's let's go through some of the quotes from this. She talks about, you know, the Beatles' attitude towards their fans has always been, to put it mildly, cavalier. Far from being grateful, they were rather cross about not having been discovered before, which is kind of funny, actually. It is. And again, you can't imagine anybody these days of PR allowing that to go out. Yeah, well, they don't really, they treat their fans in a very cavalier fashion. No, it's all about the fans. Mm. Um, then there's the, their public announcements grow more daring daily. We're more popular than Jesus now, John Lennon said. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. There it is. Tick tock, tick tock, <laughs> little time bomb. Absolutely. And she goes on to say they make fewer concessions to the fact that they are public figures than do, does any other public figure. They do not bother to cultivate even people in their own world. Show business, they say, belongs to the Jews. It's part of the Jewish religion. And you think, oh boy, <laughs> that's quite a quite a statement. And that that it's not attributed there, but that's a quote from Paul. And I think both Jim McCartney and Aunt Mimi, whenever Brian Epstein was coming into the picture, they were kind of going, "Yes, you want somebody Jewish looking after your money." So I mean, it, it it's it's an old trope, it's a cliche, and there it is, right in the middle of an article uh, in the New York Times magazine. 
So if you're if you're if you've got your cancel counter out, that's two things that would have got them cancelled. Um, let, let's push on with what's in the article. Uh, Ring, Ringo Starr, who has a happier turn of phrase than he's usually credited with. Oh, good, Ringo's not going to say anything controversial. No. Said that nobody but the four of them knew what it was like when the heat was on. I suppose he said we get on together because there's only four people in the world like us. When there was all that Beatlemania, we were pushed into a corner, just the four of us, a sort of trap, really, like Siamese quads eating out of the same bowl. What? <laughs> oh, you know, that thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's, yeah, Siamese quads eating out of the same bowl. Oh, jeez, what the, you know. That's not, not mm. good. She goes on to say, they've always taken money more seriously than fame. I asked to be successful, George Harrison said, aggrieved. I never asked to be famous. Not controversial in itself, but you can see there that is the basis of George's entire output song-wise for the next... <laughs> 30 years, you know, I didn't want to be famous. I just yep. wanted to play guitar. Don't bother me. Um, uh, only only Paul, 24, and the unmarried one lives in London. He goes out a great deal to parties, art galleries, the cinema, the theatre. He loves London and has bought a house there. Actress Jane Asher is his bird and he is a constant visitor to her parents, Avery. <laughs> that is a That is almost a Derek Taylor turn of phrase. Yes, but uh, Jane Asher is his bird. Um, it gets it gets worse. <laughs> the Beatles are possessive about their wives. Indeed, Ringo likes to think that he owns his. Still a minor, you see. He said her parents signed her over to me when I married her. That knocked me out. Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! Yes. Um. Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Um. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not good stuff, really. Um, <clears throat> then there's also John talking about his son, um, who uh, Maureen says he was against the whole idea of babies in the beginning. John was won over by his son's close physical resemblance to himself. I couldn't bear him to have a London accent. I'm thinking of sending him to the French Lycée in London. It seems the best thing for him in his position. I feel sorry for him, though. I couldn't stand ugly people when I was five, and most of the ugly ones are foreign. Oh no, guys, stop talking. So, so if you're if you're if you're pay- playing at home, we've had a go at religion. We've had a go at um, Judaism. We've had a go at Siamese quads. We've called women birds. Ringo has talked about having to get his wife signed over to him. Foreign people are ugly, and uh, yes, mo- the, she kind of wraps up the article by saying the Beatles will go to a certain extent their own ways. Tough, assertive characters such as they are, they cannot be forever submerged into a corporate identity. Which, you know, I guess is borne out by the fact that here we are talking about them all these years later. Yes, absolutely spot on. Uh, you know, she, she predicted the end four years before it happened. Um, so this comes out in the New York Times. <clears throat> and uh, despite the whatever it is, seven or eight things that they say that are controversial, this isn't necessarily the thing that pushes this uh, over the edge or into the popular consciousness. No, again, this doesn't sort of land in a in a bad way particularly it's only when the four interviews are republished uh on the 29th of july in a magazine called date book which is just two weeks before the Beatles tour of the u.s is due to start it's only then that these comments start to gain traction in the sort of popular consciousness and the storm breaks Yes. Now, Datebook is an interesting magazine because it's it's designed for, you know, it's designed and it looks 
from a distance like a classic mid-60s teenage magazine, colourful cover with text and, you know, some doe-eyed pop star on the front. And this particular issue had a doe-eyed picture of Paul on the front, not even John, Paul. No. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a magazine that does have a bit of controversy or it, it, it's kind of a very, um, it's certainly taking a very liberal stance towards things. Yes, and it's quite a grown-up magazine. It doesn't really, although it has the look of a teenage magazine with sort of pop lyrics and cut-out posters and things like that, um, it, it's actually not that once you open the cover. And it's dealing with serious issues in a serious way. And there's a description from an article in Rolling Stone in 2019, and it describes it as a boundary-pushing magazine for its day, covering serious social and political topics, as well as standard entertainment fare. Art Unger, the editor, was a gay man in an unwelcoming culture, and he saw firsthand how minority groups could be oppressed and ridiculed. This had a marked effect on its editorial vision, steering him towards social justice. So it's it's a very serious magazine hiding behind a sort of glossy teenage cover. It published articles about uh, Kennedy's Peace Corps, uh, essays railing against a patriarchal society, critical of the Jim Crow laws, features on the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Project to register black voters. Rolling Stone says this was radical stuff for a teen mag in the mid-60s. Yes, and Art Unger was this kind of figurehead of the magazine that made it the magazine it was. And the other person involved there was Danny Fields, who um, is still on the go. He's 83 years of age, but he, he kind of got more famous later on as being the guy who signed and managed Iggy and the Stooges and the MC5 and the Ramones and, um, you know, was involved with Jim Morrison and, and all the rest. So these two people are, you know, Danny Fields might be might be known to people who, um, who listen to Nothing Is Real, but these two have an agenda running this magazine, but it's all under the preserve of this guy, Art Unger. So bearing all that in mind, we've got to think, well, how did they come to republish these interviews? Did they just pick them up directly from Maureen Cleave? Did they look at the New York Times? But actually, it was down to Tony Barrow, who's the Beatles press guy at the time. He sends the interviews, uh, the, the Evening Standard interviews, to Art Unger with a covering letter in which he actually says, quote, I think the style and content is very much in line with the sort of thing Book likes to use. And sure enough, there is a, a, a published, the magazine is published, and it features quotes from the article on the front cover. The magazine itself supports interracial dating and uh, basically to, to attack twin pillars of racism and religion. And on the cover is a quote from Paul McCartney that we're not prepared, I'm guessing, to read out. Well, yeah, the the, the magazine uh, itself, if you look at the cover, uh, you know, it says, you know, date book written for and by teens themselves, now monthly. It's the September uh, 1966 edition. And there's there's eight pull co- quotes on the front cover attributed to various different people of various different levels of fame. Um, and it's called the shout out issue. So the first quote is by Paul McCartney and it, look, it features the N word. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's not only that, but it's having a go at the USA. And shall we read it in, in censored form? 
uh, Paul McCartney, it's a lousy country where anyone black is a dirty N-word. And it's not printed as N-word on the cover of this magazine. And you have to think of the state of civil rights in 1966, where that's not the bit that draws opprobrium. It's the quote underneath it, which is John Lennon saying, I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. But they're both front and centre on the cover of this magazine. If you had to pick which of those quotes was going to cause the issue, it wouldn't be the quote from John. No, but maybe that's a 2023 set of eyes. Um, It's interesting to look at the other quotes on the front page. Len Barry, who says, English groups won't last. There's no longevity in dirt. Controversial. Scott Walker, who says, pop music can warp your sense of values about life. I was quite surprised that Scott Walker was on the front of a US magazine uh, in the summer of 66. Um, Dylan, and the quote from Dylan is, message songs are a drag. Uh, Mike Bryan, who says interracial dating must follow school integration, with a big exclamation mark. Um, Mike Bryan, I don't know who Mike Bryan is. I've been trying to find out about him. I think he just might have been a columnist for the magazine. Um, Tim Leary, who says turn on, tune in, drop out. That's news to me. And then a general quote to teens, which says Vietnam must go, going steady equals going all the way. Long hair must stay. LSD is for creeps. So as a snapshot of something that's hitting the newsstands in July 1966. It's all there, you know? LSD is kind of on the agenda, interracial civil rights stuff. It's pretty heavy for a teen mag. It's uh, it's all happening in Deadbook. It is, <laughs> you can't imagine, I mean, you, you can't imagine those sort of headlines, those quotes. Uh, and as you say, all with a doe-eyed picture of Paul on the, the front. So it's almost like a parody of of a you know, Jackie magazine or something like that. It, it's it's a parody. You, you've got Paul, the quintessential pop star on the cover, and then these quite radical quotes uh, down the left-hand side. Um, you know, the, the magazine, you know, Rolling Stone said it was a radical stuff for a teen mag in the mid-60s. And even when the Beatles were on tour in 1965, um, they put Ringo's comments on segregation front and centre. So they had Ringo in the magazine in 1965 in Datebook saying, segregation is a lot of rubbish. As far as we're concerned, people are people no different from each other. We'd never play South Africa if it means a segregated audience. What a lot of rubbish. It's nice that um, Ringo was tuned into South Africa 16 years before Queen went there. That's nice. That's nice. It is <laughs> difficult to... I thought you were. I thought you were a Queen fan. I like Queen, but they shouldn't have done that. Or Hot Space. Anyway. <laughs> Hot Space is the best one, and you know it. Anyway. This issue of Datebook hits the newsstands at the end of July, 29th of July, 1966. And very quickly, it comes to the attention of a guy called Tommy Charles, who is a DJ for WAQYN, Wacky Radio in Alabama. And again, it's not the Paul quote, it's the Lennon quote. And he seems to have thought, well, this would be an easy way to inject some controversy into his radio show. So he and his uh, on-air sidekick, a chap called Doug Layton, comment on the remark and spontaneously suggest a ban the Beatles campaign. And this does seem to have been a completely spontaneous response to people trying to drum up ratings focus on something, and they announce they're not going to play any of the band's music in retaliation because of John Lennon's, quote, blasphemous comments, unquote. It was just a stunt. 
by a local radio station. Yeah. Anyone who's worked in radio will know, okay, what will we do to fill up the three hours today? You know, what wacky things will we say? What will we do? It just starts as a bit of a lark. Um, Again, I don't think it was meant to be all of this, but yeah, it starts off as a local radio stunt on WAQY Wacky in Alabama. Um, And, you know, it could have ended there, but there was a... Uh, a chap called Al Ben, who's the manager of the Birmingham office of United Press International, which is a news agency. And he's listening to Wacky on the way to work. And he thinks, oh, this is a, this is a story. This is a good story. I, I, if only there was some way I could get this story out to the world. Oh, wait, I work for United Press International. And this is at the point where the switch gets flicked from we're more popular to Jesus than Jesus to the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Yes, and I think that's important. We have to remember the context, um, but more importantly, we have to remember the original quote. He never said the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. This is the point at which it all kicks off. That change, uh, popular to bigger, and the fact that it's a local radio station, bit of a stunt, picked up by United Press International. The band becomes the story initially. And Georgian Anthology says, you know, the repercussions of all this were big, especially in the Bible Belt in the South. They were having a field day. And this is all on the verge of their big tour. So all the elements are right for the flames to be fanned, for this to become very, very big and for the Beatles to have to account for themselves. But we are going to cover that next week. The what happened next once the bigger than Jesus meme. And it is a meme, Stephen. Because a meme is an idea that travels and propagates through populations as if it's replicating like a virus. So this is one of the first ever memes. Um, The Beatles have to deal with the ramifications of bigger than Jesus. Is there anything the Beatles didn't invent? I know, they invented memes. Amazing stuff. Um, We remain available in all the usual places. www.nothingisrealpod.com is the website. That's your portal to the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, our stuff on X, um, the uh, Instagram, uh, all the other fun stuff. Uh, You can find out all about ACAST Plus on on the website as well. We want to thank all our ACAST Plus supporters. There's about 40 or 50 episodes up there now. I don't know. And... um, uh, and yeah, we always are happy to hear from you. And we have an email address now, Stephen. Did you know this? What is our email address, Jason? <laughs> our email address. I've never, e- I've never emailed us, so. <laughs> Nothing is real pod at outlook.com if you want to drop us a line. And we have a mailing list on our website now. So if you want to sign up for occasional newsletters where we remember to tell you things, it's all go. We're, it's, a, it's a multimedia conglomerate is what's happening here, I would say. Anyway. Just let's not, not give any interviews to the press. By Jesus. That's... <laughs> well, listen, if you really want to know how I feel, I'll tell you off, Mike. But anyway, for now, we, we like to hear from you. But for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.